Hello, everyone, and welcome to Close Readings. I'm your host, Kamran Javadizade, and it's my great pleasure today to have Keegan Cook Finberg on the podcast. Um, Keegan is a really exciting um, young scholar who has chosen um, um, an awesome, fascinating, um, provocative, I think, poem for us to discuss today, um, poem by the contemporary poet Harriet Mullen, um, called Dim Lady. And um, of course, we'll have lots more to say about that poem and about Harriet Mullen um, in the remainder of the episode. But let me first tell you a little bit about Keegan. Um, she is an assistant professor of English at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and affiliate faculty in the departments of gender, women's and sexuality studies, language, literacy, and culture at UMBC. She's finishing a book um, right now called Poetry in General, which I think is a great title. Um, its subtitle is Interdisciplinarity and U.S. Public Forms. And that book is concerned with post-1960 uh, poetry and its relation to degradations and changes to the welfare state. Um, and in the book, Keegan argues that the category of poetry itself changes with changing notions of the public. Um, for those interested, you can find an example, and I'll um, direct you to um, links to these things. You can find an example of that research um, in an article she published in the journal Textual Practice, which offers a reading of Franco Harris poems about, or Franco, not about, but Franco Harris poems that, in her words, figure the Seagram building, an important um, mid-century architectural um, um, uh, work uh, building in, in Midtown New York City um, and that resituates um, O'Hara's well-known I Do This, I Do That poems. Um, you, you Listeners to the podcast might remember that we began the podcast with an episode uh, with Brian Glavey um, on one such poem, uh, Frank O'Hara's um, Having a Coke With You. Um, Keegan's work resituates those poems. Um, th those poems for her don't just chronicle the city as I think um, on the surface we might be inclined to say that they do or, or they don't just chronicle sort of O'Hara's um, flanner like wandering through the city or his experience of the city. But according to Keegan, they remake the city um, and they do that in some sense in the present tense of reading as well. The, the poems she says we should think of them as being like scores or happenings. Um, and um, and she, she writes this sentence, which I think is just great, towards the end of that article. Each poem asks us to participate in an event in the places that we know in order to transform these very places. Um, that's, a, that's a really exciting insight to offer, and it's an important one, I think. Um, Keegan's also been working on a, on a new project um, about poetry and surveillance and has published um, two essays that draw from that project on poets who are near and dear to me, poets that I've written about as well um, and, and I really admire and have learned from Keegan's writing about them. Those poets are Claudia Rankin, um, whose book Citizen um, is, is something Keegan has written about, and Solmaz Sharif, um, whose first book, Look, is an important um, text for Keegan in this project. Um, 
In, in general, as a scholar, Keegan uh, Cook-Finberg takes poetry seriously, and she takes its situatedness in culture and politics seriously, which I think is not an evasion of whatever we might or someone might mean by, the fra- by a phrase like the poem itself or the, <laughs> the sort of project that's announced or implied by the, the existence of this podcast where we look just at a poem. You know, you can think of that as a um, clearly the, the podcast project, my podcast project is indebted in many ways to um, a critical uh, regime like the new criticism or something that developed out of that. But, but Keegan, I think is giving us a really lovely and important example of the way um, to consider a poem's situatedness and interrelatedness to culture and politics doesn't just evade the poem, but rather revalues the work that poems do, um, whether we attend to that work or not. And, um, and I'm, I'm grateful to say that she does. And she's a, um, a critic and a scholar from whom I've learned a lot. She's also published, um, reviews of new books of poetry and sort of public facing um, journals and is a poet herself. So for all kinds of reasons, I'm, I'm really excited to have Keegan Cook-Finberg on the podcast today. Um, Keegan, joining us from Baltimore. Yeah. How are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you so much for that amazing um, introduction. I, you can't see it. Our listeners can't see it, but I feel like I'm blushing. That was, um, that was so kind. Um, thank you. Well, I've been, well, you- um, a fan of the show and, um, you know, a long time, um, you know, reader of your, of your scholarship. So I'm just like totally thrilled to be here. Well, it's a treat for me. I'm really happy to have you here. And I, I was really happy that, um, to, uh, you know, when I invited you on, um, I think there was some deliberation about a poem that you might want to choose, but pretty early on in that process, you, um, settled on the poet Harriet Mullen in which I was, um, excited about. Um, I don't, you know, like to take for granted that our audience knows um, who every poet that we discuss here um, is, and I think some kind of context setting might be useful. Can you tell us a little bit about um, how you came to be a reader of Harriet Mullen and like where that fit into your education or you know life in poetry? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um... Yeah, um, you mentioned um, one of the things actually I love about this about this podcast is that you ask um, folks to choose a poem that they love, um, and um, Harriet Mullen is this sort of amazing intersection for me. Of I mean, she's so um, difficult and scholarly, you know, sort of productive for me as a scholar, and I also just I love her work. Um, and I first, I first came across it. I did my PhD um, at UC Santa Cruz um, in the literature department, um, where she also did her PhD um, like 30 years before I did. But there was this sort of legacy, I think, um, of Mullen as um, this like exemplary poet critic. Um, and she really embodied like a lot of the values that I, as I was, um, you know, studying for my PhD were really important. She was like this amazing kind of experimentalist. She, you know, was very interested in the philosophy of language. Um, she, you know, was someone who was sort of, you know, innovative in her work, but had these like very clear kind of politics and principles to, you know, what she was doing. Um, so, you know, that's that's where I first discovered her. And then she, her work kind of became, 
part of my teaching toolkit. You know, one of the things that I really love um, about a lot of Mullen's work is that it's um, deceptively, um, it seems simple, but right, like when you first read it, you think that there's something um, sort of easy and it really draws you in. And I think that is important. There's this like very, um, like important layer of accessibility and of play and of joy. Um, that's really important to the work, but um, it also just sort of unfolds to these really like crucial questions about um, the intersection of poetry and politics, um, you know, the philosophy of language and race and kind of the dreamscape of the way that we speak and use language without thinking. Um, so this is all part of, I mean, Mullen herself, you know, calls this serious play. Um, and it came hmm. to be like a really important part of the way that I you know, conceived of, um, you know, poetry, um, when I first, you know, started studying it and it's still, and it still is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I, 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 that, that's such a useful, um, introduction. I love the idea also just the kind of institutional history you've given us where, <laughs> you know, you sort of get to a place and, um, just so listeners, um, understand, I, I think what you said, she wasn't still at Santa Cruz, um, she had moved on, but in some sense, your sense of it, having arrived at your doctoral program, was that her legacy was was alive and well. And and of course, we've we've spoken a lot about Mullen already in the past tense. She is herself a, 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 um, a living poet, which is a lovely um, a lovely thing, an important thing to note. Um, but but you, for you at Santa Cruz, it wasn't that she was around all the time or that you were seeing her, but but she was within the sort of living memory of the place or informed it in some sense. Is that, is that right, Keegan? Yes, absolutely. And thank you for letting me sort of clarify a little bit. Yeah. She is a professor um, at UCLA um, and she's, you know, an important, um, you know, critic as well as, um, as well as a poet um, and, you know, continues to, you know, write books. Um, she, and I should also say before she came to UC Santa Cruz for her, you know, for her PhD, I think she did her, finished her PhD in 1990 she was already a published poet. Um, so mm -hmm. she had written um, uh, Tree uh, Tall Woman um, before that, um, which is, you know, a really sort of interesting, important collection that is, you know, very much kind of inspired and in, in the style of the Black Arts Movement. Um, mm -hmm. But one thing I think that happened, like in terms of her poetry and maybe her career trajectory at UC Santa Cruz, which I think sort of comes to kind of how maybe um, she left an imprint um, on the literature department in this way that I felt is that um, her works after she was there um, really started to experiment with like multiple discourses at once. Like she became mm. really interested in, um, you know, play, doing procedure, for example, on previously written um, texts, on playing with um, you know, uh, examples of the Western, you know, canon, mixing that with some of her other, you know, really important influences, you know, such as the Black Arts Movement and jazz. Um, and, and that's actually, that's one of the reasons why it was so hard when you asked me to choose a poem. I sort of, I waffled a lot because, uh -huh. um, you're not alone in this, this, by the way, like almost <laughs> everyone waffles. Yeah. A lot. That makes yeah. me feel better. Yeah. <laughs> and I was really wriggly. Like I didn't want to be pinned. I actually finally sent the confirmation that this is what we would do a few days ago. But <laughs> that's um, true. That's true. Uh, she wrote these books that um, 
are just incredible that, you know, wouldn't, I think, be a good fit for the podcast, but I thought maybe it would be helpful um, to mention because um, there's this sort of through line in her work. So um, mm-hmm. this book, Trimmings, um, which um, in 1991, and this was sort of shortly after the after her PhD, and it's, it's a rewriting um, of Gertrude Stein's Tender Buttons. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's amazing. It's this like sort of critical work. She really, um, you know, draws out um, anti-Blackness in Gertrude Stein's text, um, which, you know, mm-hmm. critics have struggled to write about really clearly, like in a scholarly way. Um, but also at the same time, it's like this sort of like incredible unfolding and homage to what, you know, Stein is doing with the domestic sphere and the way she constructs femininity and sort of all of, and sexuality. Um, but there isn't, because it's, it's prose poetry and it really, the different parts are dependent on each other. Wasn't a good fit. Um, but then the other one that I was sort of looking at and thinking about for this cast, um, for this podcast was, um, sperm kit which she wrote um not too long um after that one um and that's that's the way that i am saying the title and um Mm -hmm. listeners can't see it but it's um it's uh um the word orthographically challenging right yes yes thank you um yeah it's it's so it's capital letters um of um supermarket but with um asterisks over some of the letters right. um, in it as though you were looking at like a like a neon sign um, that had some of the letters blown out or um, you know that some of the letters um, had fallen off you know of a, a sign or something like that of a supermarket um, and you know importantly the letters that are not there are you are um, so there's this is like another example i think of um like some of this and this is a long it's a full length long a, a book length long um prose poem um that's in these parts where she's looking at um at consumerism and she's really thinking about kind of the the politics of eating this notion like you are what you eat or you are the mm-hmm. supermarket right like mm-hmm. right there in the title um, but also the kind of the frenzied um, kind of, um, uh, you know, racial capitalism behind the way stuff is sold to us, um, right. you know, throughout throughout the book. And the the kind of this like sexual connotations of the of sperm kit as a title, I think, talks about sort of gets to that notion, too, because although sperm kit it, itself is like you're at least I when I first hear it, it's totally um almost nonsensical to me you assume like okay is this something to measure fertility or is it something to help fertility like what exactly is it it's not Mm. totally clear there's something um that's like it's clear that it's a mass market kind of consumer good getting to you know some aspect of Mm. um sexuality and that that is like a preoccupation kind of throughout her work and the way that like these um, con- constructs of sexuality and consumerism are, are raced and racialized. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, there's, there's many more, you know, there's a couple more works between those books and um, Sleeping with the Dictionary, which is where Dim Lady um, right. comes from. Um, but in choosing this book for the cast, I mean, it's, it's a good length as we talked about. Um, but it also comes from this really cool collection that itself is 
the whole collection is a um you know either constraint based or procedural you know depending on sort, right. of, sort of how you talk about those words and it's um it's an abecedarian um or you know it's alpha it's alphabetical each um poem is in alphabetical order and dim lady is um under d right, right. um so that would be sort of the only other important thing to know we'll talk more i'm sure about um sure. procedure but in terms yeah. of, kind of situating this one um no yeah. that's 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 super helpful and um you know going i i love you know the, your invoking of her phrase serious play that seems um important here and throughout her career you've also done a really generous thing for our listeners in giving them you know people who become interested in mullen after hearing us talk about this one poem will have lots of other books to look for and um and ways of thinking about her i also love what you said earlier about how her poems can seem sort of easy at first and then that um uh that that can open a door into having other kinds of experience with a poem that we wouldn't i think call easy and i think um, I mean, you don't need to hear me say this, but maybe it's useful for listeners to hear something like this said aloud, that the, that the notion that a poem can be difficult or easy, I don't think it's, it's ever really adequate or certainly not the most interesting way of thinking of, of those terms, which are meaningful, which you know, we can attach to certain poems, I think wouldn't, would not be on like a slider on like a two dimensional slider from easy to difficult in, in your somewhere on that line, you know, instead poems and our experiences of poems sort of unfold in time. And we can be having one kind of experience with a poem at first and a different kind by the end. And I can think of poems that are, that seem easy at first and get quite difficult. And then I can think of poems that are quite difficult and you know forbidding at first but once you unlock something about them they suddenly resolve into some other kind of experience um and so i think you've given us a really rich way of thinking not just about you know mullen's work but about the whole sort of question of difficulty in general um if i could just follow up with one one more question about a couple of the terms that you used before we get to this poem and why you chose this poem and so forth. In particular, um, you talk about um, Mullen's um, uh, use of um, uh, procedural techniques and of constraint. And um, for people who aren't sort of immersed in poetry world. Um, those are words that have ordinary everyday meanings, but they have, I think, special meanings within um, within poetry that are not like altogether unrelated from the ordinary meanings, but they mean something in particular, I think, to, to the way poetry has been practiced, and I would say in particular in the contemporary period. Um, so maybe um, just uh, unpack those terms a bit for us, if you don't mind, Keegan. Yeah, thank you. Um... Yeah, it, well, and it's this is interesting. So, um, and Mullen herself has like an interesting relationship with those terms too. Um, mm -hmm. When we talk about um, uh, procedures, um, often um, we think, you know, in the poetry landscape, often in the poetry world, often we think about um, Uipo, right? This um, group of um, French um, men. 
Um, it began, I think, 1960. Um, and it's it was a bunch of um, folks who got together and were coming up with um, mathematical principles um, by which to generate um, poetry. So these are generative processes or procedures. Some of them are really complicated math and some of them are not. Um, mm -hmm. um, and this ULIPO is an abbreviation, um, by the way. So this is um, Ouvoir de Literature Potentielle or um, a Workshop for Potential Literature. And that was like a big part of this group's um, sort mm -hmm. of ideas that they weren't like the uh, it was it wasn't that they were creating these beautiful objects like it was the the process right. itself that was really interesting to them and so one way to think about this type of work procedural work is process oriented um, and a really famous one that I think it you know is important also to think about for this poem that's also very simple um, is n plus seven um, or you know s plus seven if you know, from the French. Um, and so this is um, substantif, which, you know, is noun in French plus seven. So the idea is you take a previously written text and it can be anything, um, you know, poets have done this with all kinds of things and you take every noun in that text and replace it with the noun, the seventh noun following it in a dictionary. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, you end up with something you know, often kind of mad libsy um, mm -hmm. that um, sometimes, um, you know, has a certain nonsense quality about it. But the idea is that it also maybe um, through this process, like unravels something actually, you know, quite truthful about the language um, itself. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So so that's, you know, process based or procedure. That's, you know, often um, what we're thinking about. Right. Um, which is kind of complicated because Mullen herself, um, she gets asked a lot if she's an Olympian or if she, uh -huh. like what her relationship is to Ulipo. And my favorite answer that um, she says, um, my only like relationship to Ulipo is that Harry Matthews and I have the same initials. <laughs> um, and Harry Which Matthews is a kind is of like, procedural answer to that. Exactly. Kind of like, yeah. exactly. So that's what I love yeah. about it, right? It's, yeah. it's like super tricky. And Harry Matthews is a—he's like the only American, or he was the only American Olympian. Uh -huh. um, uh, I don't know if that's true anymore, but a sort of <laughs> famous Olympian. Um, and she she goes on to say, you know, their practices are far-reaching, and I'm interested in some of them and stuff. But she often talks about her own like um, inspiration and her allegiances is very different from that tradition, and so she is working with some of these ideas, you know, about math and, um, you know, kind of exacting ways of um, doctoring texts in order to expose something about them. But she's also working like with these other um, experimental traditions, like from like the Black Arts Movement that's really interested in, you know, radical politics as experimentalism. So for her, it's, it's like, it's interesting because it's, um, it's a mix. But I love that her answer that you, you said that her answer was procedural, because that's exactly when we think about this sort of experimentalism, that's the type of thing that we're looking for. And that she's often doing like her um, in some of her work, like her um, Craig Dworkin has a great chapter about this. Like she actually writes her signature, like her initials within the text. There's like anagrams and puns and right. she's interested in sort of the, way that language itself is 
generative. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's when we think about procedure, it's often sort of, you know, coming down um, to either something like visualizing a pun or, um, you know, creating um, language out of language itself in order to right. expose something about that language to begin with. The premise, it, it sounds like, is that, you, you know, in a kind of romantic idea of poetry, and I mean this in like the English romantic sense or whatever kind of German romantic sense, perhaps, you know, that the idea might be that the self contains these sort of wells into which the poet can lower their bucket to draw out the the thing that becomes the poem. And in this way of thinking of things, it sort of depersonalizes that, at least in some ways, or has the potential of doing so, because it's language itself, whatever we might mean by that, and that might mean a dictionary, or that might mean other kinds of aspects or ways of imagining what the language is, that it knows things that the poet can access without knowing beforehand or something and bring into yeah. the poem that results. That's, that's really fascinating. Um, and, and it, uh, Oh, go on, please. Yeah. No, I just, I love that. And I just wanted to say like, it's, it's almost that the, that the poets, um, I don't know, like romantic or sort of bourgeois consciousness actually gets in the way. Yeah. I think for these poets of exposing something more interesting or political or true that like is at the the bottom of that well that you were sure. talking about. Yeah. Um yeah. so that's, yeah. That's great. That. That, that's great. And 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 before people think like, oh well this sounds so crazy, you know, bringing math into poetry <laughs> or whatever, you know, working with a dictionary, whatever it is. Um you know, just a reminder that take whatever kind of very traditional or down the line, the most traditional kind of down the line picture of poetry that you might have in mind, say in the English, in the Anglophone tradition, you know, we'll be talking today about the sonnet, for instance. Um, that too is a is a form that, you know, obeys certain rules and some of them are, you know, depend on the poet's understanding of numbers and counting. And, um, and so... You know, I don't want to say, oh, that's all this is. It's just more of the same. It's clearly a different kind of way of thinking about poetry, but it, but there are continuities between it and um, more sort of quote unquote traditional ways of imagining what, what the poet's work or what the poet's procedure might look like. I, I had also asked you about constraint, but in a way, I think you've sort of given us um, an answer to that question along the way, unless you had more that you wanted to say about that term specifically right now. I mean, I love what you said. Constraint is just rules. And, you know, there is a line of thinking that the more rules you have, um, that actually the more creativity, you know, is afforded, you know, if you add more rules that you can sort of do more interesting things. And so, um, you know, when people work with constraint based processes, like, you know, maybe even thinking um, not just about the number of lines or syllables in a line, but, um, you know, which particular vowels, you know, you're allowed to right. use or, or something mm. like that. Um, mm-hmm. So just kind of layering those on um, for many of the same kind of philosophical reasons um, that, that you discussed. Terrific. Um, so, you know, I was going to ask you why you chose this poem in particular, but it also seems to me that you've sort of given us an answer. I mean, it it <laughs> it, it, it evinces so many of these um, aspects of Mullen that are 
you know, clearly of interest to you. And, um, uh, but is there anything else you'd want to say about how you landed on this poem in particular before we, I think, listen to it is probably what we should do next. Um, yeah, no, I think I'll, I'll allow for that element of, of surprise. Um, I think Good. we're ready for a listen. Good. Good. Yeah. Okay. So, so um, we'll, we'll listen to a recording of Harriet Mullen um, reading Dim Lady. I think um, some of you, um, well, I'm not going to say more about it than that. We'll, we'll, we'll do our context um, setting and so forth after, after we've heard it. But, um, but here is Harriet Mullen. This one I read often because I enjoyed the process of writing this along with my students. We all took um, a particular text. This was to uh, just get across the idea that you don't always have to face the blank page. You can start with something already written and just alter it. So this is Dim Lady. My honey bunches peepers are nothing like neon. Today's special at Red Lobster is redder than her kisser. If liquid paper is white, her racks are institutional beige. If her mop were slinkies, dishwater slinkies would grow on her noggin. I have seen tablecloths in Shakey's pizza parlors, red and white, but no such picnic colors do I see in her mug. And in some minty fresh mouthwashes, there is more sweetness than in the garlic breeze my main squeeze wheezes. I love to hear her rap, Yet I'm aware that Muzak has a hipper beat. I don't know any Marilyn Monroe's. My ball and chain is plain from head to toe. And yet, by gosh, my scrumptious Twinkie has as much sex appeal for me as any lanky model or platinum movie idol who's hyped beyond belief. So that's Harriet Harriet Mullen reading Dim Lady. Keegan, what do you find yourself thinking about as you listen to her voice? I mean, I I, I found myself hearing um, sort of curious about the tone of her reading. Um, and I wonder if that might be a like a generative word for you here, but I'm also just curious in a kind of open-ended way about what you found yourself thinking about as you were listening to her voice just now. Yeah, yeah. Um... The tone in this poem is so hard to pin down. It's all over the place. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's like one of the things, I mean, it's, um, you know, uh, even just, you know, honey bunches peepers, like this isn't, um, it's, you know, it's maybe it's slang, it's not slang we use, Um, not necessarily contemporary slang is what I mean. Um, Mm -hmm. But there, there is a lot of contemporary, you know, there is some contemporary um, slang in it. uh, so the, you know, the, the diction kind of drives us like in a number, in a number of places, um, which like, you know, I think makes you curious about, about some of the things that we were talking about before about language and procedure, yeah. um, right away, like where these words are coming from, um, and why they're, why exactly they're, you know, sort of strung together in this way. Right, right. So um, she describes, you know, one thing I liked about um, this recording is that she um, introduces it a little bit by giving a a very kind of abbreviated account of its um, origins of how she generated it, how she wrote it. Um, And for her, that's a story that involves like um, 
pedagogy, and um, that seemed interesting to me. Um, it, it, the, the the few words she said about it before she read it also, I think, obviously resonated with the kind of bio sketch that you gave of her, that kind of overview of her career and of the kind of poet that you um, take her to be. But um, tell us, um, Keegan, you know, sort of you've described Mullen as a um, as a scholar and as a poet, right? And as an important model for you of what that, or what the sort of twinning of those identities might look like. Um, so, um, you know, do you, do you, um, is there a sort of a particular version of that um, question that obtains for you here in the way she sets up the poem? Yeah, it's so unassuming. I mean, this is this is like the play part, right? Um, like she says, like you you can. I showed my students, you know, that you can start with. You don't have to start with an empty page, you know. You can always start with something, right? Um, which it sounds so fun, um, you know, and and easy, and um, you know, we can. We'll talk about the the source text in a second. I yeah, from kind of looking at at what she's doing, I think it's, I think it's pretty complicated, but I think um, what I mean is sort of procedurally, but I think there's um, this notion in her writing and in the way that she talks and she thinks about writing that it is, um, it's communal and it's, and it's playful, like just the way that she was talking about, like, we're never, you know, I guess this gets back to like the sort of I don't know, romantic bourgeois imagination or whatever, but we're not just like by ourselves, you know, right. toiling um, over our work of original genius, um, uh-huh. but that there's, there's like something, um, you know, we're always in dialogue um, and that, right. you know, that I think the way that she prefaced the poem, like both as being generated with students and generated, you know, with something already on the page kind of shows that um, pretty clearly. Right. You're, you, I love the word unassuming. You're so, I, th- I think it's really like spot on about her, her tone here in that intro. I mean, the more kind of like radical version of what she said might be not, um, you don't have to start with, um, what did she say? The blank page or the blank I page, so, yeah. but rather like you can't start with the blank page, you know? there's no such thing as a blank page or you might fool yourself into thinking that that's what you're doing, but you're, you know, you'd be wrong if you thought so or something. Um, but she's, you're right. She says it in a much more unassuming way than that. And, um, and also this idea as, as you also, you know, just drew out for us, but I just want to emphasize it of the person who's the teacher trying to explain something to the students, but then making that part of like, well, I'll do the assignment too you know, um, which is, I have to say, as someone who is, you know, myself a teacher, not of um, poetry writing, but of, you know, literary criticism or whatever, you know, whatever it is that we do, Keegan. Um, I, I mean, I hear colleagues of mine say like, oh, yeah, when I give a, an assignment, I do it too. And I think, God, that sounds really noble of you. Like, who has the time? But I get the value of it. So I want to be clear that I don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe I should. This makes me think, oh, there would be value in that. And there's a kind of um, admirable sort of spirit that's um, embodied in that. But so she says, um, 
you know, I wanted to show them that you can work with an, an earlier text or something to that effect. She doesn't make explicit for her audience what we are about to make explicit for ours. And I guess part of the reason for that is that she sort of trusts them to know or, you know, what the poem is. It's a famous one. Um, but Keegan, let's do the reveal. Like, wh- what is the poem <laughs> that, um, for, for people who didn't hear it, um, that, that uh, Mullen is working with here? Um, and, yeah. and say something about that, please. Yeah, thank you. No, and I will say just before I do, I also think this poem kind of stands alone too, right? Like I think there is, it's not like um, if you don't, if you don't know what the sort of the source text is that, you know, there's nothing here too, right? I think um, there, and that might be another reason, right? In addition to the one that you said, um, you know, about sort of like the echo, um, of this really famous poem in many people's minds. But I think that there's also, she wants you to kind of be seduced by this language and immersed in this language, um, you know, as well. Like there's something sort of to be said for that too. Um, But so this is Mm -hmm. for folks who maybe recognized or had like a tickle of a recognition or something. So this is Shakespeare's Sonnet 130, which begins my mistress's eyes are nothing like the sun. And this is, I mean, it's like, so I think maybe middle school reading or something. I mean, it's like very, you know, widely um, taught and, you know, canonized and thought about and I think maybe misread, but also read well. I mean, it's just, it's sort Mm. of so um, ubiquitous. Um, And um, so when, once you sort of recognize it, even if you didn't, you know, at first or in the recording or something like that, um, you know, it's hard to kind of unsee it um, as there. Um, and I think it would be helpful, um, to read, to read the whole thing. So, um, yeah, if I could, yeah. if I, uh, so yeah. please do that in just a moment. But one, one thing I might suggest to listeners, um, at, at, before Keegan reads the, the Shakespeare to you here, um, might be to, um, to be looking at the text of the Mullen as Keegan reads the Shakespeare, because I think, and sort of tracking it, I think you'll start to get a sense not just that this is a poem that is sort of in some kind of homage or ironic relation or whatever. And we'll get into all of that, obviously, with this earlier text, but exactly sort of how it's mapping itself onto that text. I think it might be illuminating to do that. So there should be a link in the um, episode notes that'll take you to a um, uh, an image um, or the text of of Mullen's poem. So, so maybe, yeah, read along as Keegan reads the text that it seems to be written in relation to. Fabulous. Okay. Um, my mistress's eyes are nothing like the sun. Coral is far more red than her lips red. If snow be white, why then her breasts are done. If hairs be wires, black wires grow on her head. I have seen roses damasked red and white, but no such roses see I in her cheeks. And in some perfumes, there is more delight than in the breath from my, sorry, than in the breath that from my mistress reeks. I love to hear her speak, yet well I know that music hath a far more pleasing sound. I grant I never saw a goddess go. My mistress, when she walks, treads on the ground. And yet, by heaven, I think my love is rare, as any she belied with false compare. 
Great. Thanks, Keegan. Um, so n- neither of us, neither you nor I, is, is a um, Shakespeare scholar or, <laughs> or works um, in that period. Um, but, uh, but maybe there are a couple of things we could say just to help people feel comfortable with, with the sonnet for people who don't know it inside and out already. I mean, do you want to get into any of that, Keegan? Or like, how would you introduce this poem? Or like, what would you tell a classroom of undergrads about this poem if you had it in front of you? Yeah, I mean, this, right. So that, um, so Shakespeare's already, I think, well, the, this poem is already playful, maybe is one thing to point out, like, um, that would be relevant here. So um, it's already playing with a previously existing, you know, form, um, which is, you know, something, you know, the the sonnet, but also the, the love sonnet, the um, sort of mm-hmm. almost like a um, a mock blazon, um, which mm-hmm. is um, like a particular sort of love poem that goes through and chronicles like particular parts of a a beloved. Um, and so right, it would sort of enumerate like the body parts, you know, <laughs> right? Um, just like this poem does, but but in a kind of loving and ever more exalted sort of way. And and this is in part a tradition that would come from like poets like Petrarch and the Italian tradition. All right, go on, Keegan. Yeah, that's great. Yes, yeah, yeah no, exactly. I mean, exactly. And then, and then also that there's a particular sort of like um, standard of beauty that goes with that tradition as well. So the the Petrarchan, like beloved, and um, you know, is um, is fair, mm-hmm. is um, you know, blonde, is angelic, is uh, goddess like. Sort of all of these things that this. Um, beloved is not um, mm-hmm. are are kind of like the the tropes of that type of um, poem. Um, so this is sort of already like an undoing or a mock um, kind of version of that that type of of work. Um, totally. Uh, yeah. Yeah, like a negation of it step by step, but that invokes it all along the way, like all the. Petrarchan words are here. In other words, it's just that yes. they're negated. Um, um, that's so interesting. Um, and and so we should, and also maybe just say that the kind of like um, oh, incredibly obvious thing, which is so it's a sonnet. You know, um, it's <laughs> it's the kind of sonnet that um, Shakespeare writes. Which funny that Shakespeare would write the Shakespearean sonnet, but um, uh, you know, the Elizabethan sonnet, the English sonnet. So there are. Um, these quatrains that have a kind of um, rhyme scheme, so four line groupings, and then a couplet at the end, which a rhyming couplet at the end, which is a kind of turn or ironic kind of summation um, often of the preceding 12 lines, but we have 14 lines. Mullen's poem is not a sonnet, right? Um, and may- maybe just take that as a way of um, opening up the question about, okay, so Mullen is working with this poem. There are obvious resonances here. We can track them sort of one by one to the extent that you want to do that today, Keegan. But but um, clearly there's some distance that she's also opening up between her text and the source text that she's working with. And I, I would just say, I guess, is one way to kind of pry our foot into that door she could have done it as a sonnet and she didn't. Um, so w- what's interesting about that to you, if anything? Yeah. 
I, yeah, that's fascinating. So this is this poem's in prose. I, you know, um, Mullen's poem um, is in prose, and what I, what I mean by that is that the um, it's a block of text on the page, um, mm-hmm. and. I like that you said that she could have done it as a sonnet because many of these lines are like iambic or almost iambic. And so many mm-hmm. of Mullen's lines. And so it's funny, like instead of ending, you know, instead of having the first line be my honey bunches, peepers are nothing like neon. And then there's a period that would be like a very nice sort of end stop. She ends that line with today's sp- um, right. and then this special, you know, you find in the next line um, at red lobster and goes on. So it is, it's, um, it's highly constructed in a different way. Like it's highly mm. constructed in the way that, um, prose texts are and her whole, this, this all of sleeping with the dictionary is not like this. Like some of the poems are in couplets. There are, there are sonnets. Um, there's actually, there's another version of this, um, sonnet of sonnet 130, um, in this text. Um, and that one is also not a sonnet. Right. Um, so, so she, she, I think she wants to, she wants to kind of blow that apart and make right. it um, contemporary and make it evocative of something else, which is, you know, the, the, the codex, the book, you know, the book that mm. we're reading, um, which is often when we think of, you know, this type of text prose. And then there's an awkwardness um, about it. I mean, these, um, the line breaks often in the middle um, of a word. Um, there are no, there's only one, well, there's one end stopped line, one line with a, with a period at the end, or I guess two, because the, the concluding line. Um, the last one, yeah, right. Yeah, um, which gives a, I mean, it's, um, I noticed when she read it, she read it pretty quickly. There's this sort mm-hmm. of overflowing you know, aspect um, to the lines. And then the really important thing, and I, I was, I knew this would come up and that I don't have a great answer to it, but the really important thing about this is it's 12 lines and it's not 14. Um, Right. So there's something, I mean, she really wants to like mess with, um, you know, what we think of as the, the sonnet form. Like she's not going to give us, even one thing, even the number of lines um, right. that, it's suppo- that it's supposed to be, um, right. which I think is interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know that I have a reading of the 12 rather than 14 either, but, you know, there's something I found, I wasn't, I hadn't thought of this until you were, you were just giving us that really lucid um, um, overview of the, of sort of what she's doing with form here, um, or one of the things she's doing with form. Of course, there are many others um, besides, but you know, you, you said it's a, it's a, it's prose, which, yeah, right. So what do we mean by a, a prose poem? You know, ordinarily I might say, and uh, maybe I'd be wrong about this. I don't know that, a, you know, one of the things about a prose poem is that like the line breaks are not, are no longer significant. They're the sort of incidental, mm-hmm. um, you know, they're, they're a kind of function of typesetting rather than of artistic, um, choice. Um, you know, when I write a paragraph of prose, I don't know, maybe if I'm being super duper precious about it, I care a little bit what that paragraph looks like on the page, but I don't really, or I'm not supposed to, like, that's not the way <laughs> prose, prose organizes itself. Um, and so you might think that if this really were, um, you know, if, if this, if, if, 
if we could say and then be done with it that this is just it this is just printed as prose then you would ex- you wouldn't expect it to be like a perfect um i don't know i want to get a ruler out and measure it like is it a perfect square right so certainly you wouldn't expect the last line of the of a prose paragraph to perfectly reach the right hand margin but this one does and so i think what determines what must have determined i'm just going to make this assumption but i can't imagine any alternative to it really what must have determined something like that first line break in the middle of the word special um is well that's how she needed to play with the margins in order to get the last line of the poem to be all the way flush right at the end um now i guess you know and maybe for the poem to have a particular shape that it does so i guess what i'm saying long story short is that yeah she's taking it out of the kind of con- conventional lineation of a of a poem like the sonnet but she's not simply putting it into like everyday prose that you and I write, or I guess you when you're not being a poet, Keegan. Um, (laughs) (laughs) um, But instead she's putting it into something that's prose-like, but quite Mm. sort of formally disciplined in other ways, you know, Um, square, you know. Um, Yeah, I love that. It's it's like uber prose. Because I think one of the things that we, that you do notice about prose is it's, it's shapeliness in a book, right? I mean, not when we're, when we're writing, you know, Mm. in a word document or something like that, but, um, and the, this, yeah, this book has that, um, these sort of these perfect, you know, margins, um, for all of the poems that kind of look like this. Um, Mm -hmm. so, so yeah, so, so I think formally, um, I, yeah, I like what you I like what you said about sort of like still attentive to form and shape. Um, yeah. yeah, but maybe but maybe in a um, in a way that has more to do with like a contemporary you know uh, poetry printed poetry collection or, yeah. or sorry um, non poetry um, mm. book you know something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, the the poem also has a title which is interesting and which maybe opens up for us into some still more interesting sort of thematic or um, you know other kinds of questions having to do with race or gender Um, poems called dim lady and so one thing I in my kind of amateurish Shakespearean sort of knowledge kind of way I would say is that I think this sonnet would be one of the sonnets that is um, whose sort of object uh, um, of adoration or the um, of attention is the so-called dark lady, um, often called of of Shakespeare's sonnets. Um, so I'm sure this gets into a whole kind of history of criticism that I am just not very familiar with. But I can say that that much of it with with confidence that some of Shakespeare's sonnets seem to be addressed not to the quote unquote fair youth, but instead to this dark lady who defies these the kind of very conventional sort of markers of beauty that that Keegan was um that you were um enumerating for us before. So this takes that phrase dark lady and makes it dim lady. Um do you have thoughts about the title that Mullen has chosen here, Keegan? And what 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 questions does that open up into for you? Yeah, you know the and it's and I will say with the the dark um the dark lady of um, of this sonnet of sonnet one thirty. You know, we have this. We see this darkness, like in the similes or in the in the negated 
similes, you know, a couple times, um, you know, black wires, you know, grow, grow on her head, like the actual sort of physical darkness um, in this poem, which mm. we don't, um, you know, in all of the, in all of the, Mm-hmm. the dark lady, um, you know, sequence of the sonnet. So um, there's something interesting about that, I think, um, I mean, to Mullen, yeah. you know, I think there's something right. really important about that to Mullen. And, um, and she plays on that um, in Dim Lady um, in a few places. I think the, um, the um, finding the exact line about the, um, the dishwater, um, mm. institutional beige and dishwater. If her There's mop a lot of were slinkies, dishwater slinkies would grow on yeah. her noggin, right? That's the version of the line that you've just given us. And yes. well, maybe this is an occasion for us to just like get into some of the lines of the poem too, which, yes. yeah. you know, like track pretty one-to-one. The li- I mean, it's not as simple as that, I guess, but but you could, if you wanted to, easily identify like which you know, for each sentence of Mullen's poem, which lines does it correspond to? Now, we haven't said how it corresponds to them, um, right? But um, I don't know, pick your favorite early example and, and, and give us a sense, Keegan, of what's going on in that kind of um, use of the source material. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, there's so much to say. Okay, I'll start with like an exact, an actual example. So I think yeah. even just something like sun becoming neon um, mm-hmm. is really important, right? So um, there's these um, sort of a, sh- a string of what you might think of like as natural images, like we have sun mm-hmm. and coral and snow and roses and um, that become like kind of these obviously constructed man-made things like um, sun becomes neon, coral becomes the red lobster ad, um, snow um is a whiteout brand like not even whiteout itself but like the um the brand liquid paper, liquid paper um yeah, good. yeah so i think there i mean there's there's a lot to say about that i mean one of the things that this does is, is it sort of it shows us the way that um maybe in the um you know, in the Shakespeare sonnet, that these aren't necessarily as natural as we might think, right? That there's already mm. something very constructed about these notions of beauty within the Shakespeare sonnet. And so Mullen sort of doubles down on that logic, I think, in this mm. interesting way of like, you know, sun, we think of, I mean, sun is like, you know, the source of all life and warmth and beauty in the world. But in this poem, it's neon, which is like, um, you know, uh, garish and, um, you know, like this sort of constructed, you know, advertising, you know, element. Um, And I think, you know, one of the things that that does is it kind of, it points even further to some of the logic that we were talking about initially with the, the way that the, you know, Sonnet 130 itself is kind of already poking fun at something. It's like mm-hmm. Mullen's poem is sort of in on this joke um, and doubling down on it, like um, to the extreme. Um, and then the other thing, I mean, I will say, and I would love to get into more specific examples, which is like, you know, the most sort of fun thing to do. But because you asked about sort of like how she might arrive here, yeah. I 
we we talked a little bit, you know, previously about the N plus seven technique, um, which is replacing nouns um, with, you know, the seventh following it in the dictionary. And this, it's sort of almost tempting to say that this is something that this is that, right? Because hmm. there is... How do you mean? Well, there's this element where she takes um, Shakespeare's Shakespeare's mistress and turns it to honey bunch, um, right? Uh-huh. So she's translating many of these nouns from right. Shakespeare's poems um, in into other nouns. But what I think is really different here and really exciting, and I have kind of a couple of theories about where this comes from, um, is that these words are not similar. Like mistress isn't just similar to honey bunch um, in terms of the way that it's spelled, right? So it wouldn't be something that you mm. find near um, in the dictionary. Um, but it is working within this logic of um, of synonym um, or of right. thesaurus. Um, and so Mullen herself, I mean, she talks about this with her other works and she's sort of obsessed with reference books. Um, and mm. so there's clearly some sort of procedure going on where she's replacing nouns with synonyms, right? Um, and right. not just any synonyms. Like we talked about the sort of oddness of this diction or this tone, um, but these slang synonyms. Um, and so one of the books that she, you know, that she loves and that she talks about, like for her collection, Muse and Drudge, that she uses um, is... Um, Clarence Major's um, Juba to Drive, a dictionary of African-American slang. And so she's really interested in um, slang and and Black vernacular. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these terms, you know, are in that text and, and sort of were potentially derived from that text. So you can see perhaps that a process mm. here is really interested in not def- the definitional aspect of these nouns, but like the um, th- their um, similitude, right? Like that there's a, a, mm-hmm. a logic of the thesaurus um, yeah. working like throughout the poem and that that's one of the reasons why we get this sort of um, jumpy, jumpy tone. Um, and in terms of sort of wh- like ha- like where that, pr- that's a procedure that was not, you know, Uli Poe didn't talk about the thesaurus. Um, mm-hmm. That's not like a new Lippian procedure or anything like mm-hmm. that. So um, there's, you know, it could have, you know, she could have made this up and she doesn't, she doesn't let on like in her writing sort of how she did this or anything like that. But she does talk about slang dictionaries. Um, but right. one of the, she's a, she's a scholar, um, you know, in addition to a poet. And one of the things that she has done is bring um, like out of print um african-american novels like back into circulation and back into print right and i feel like something that's sort of cool to think about in relation to this poem is there's this book um called oreo um which is a novel um from the early 70s by um fran ross um or i think yeah i think maybe mid 1974 or something like that mm-hmm. um that um it's uh the protagonist is african-american but she has this like jewish father who speaks yiddish and it's like a journey a sort of satirical novel it's like a journey of her finding her roots and there's all these puns and language play like in the novel and one of the things the protagonist does is she comes up with a procedure where she replaces she uses a source text and then replaces every noun in it with a noun from Roget's 
thesaurus. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, so uh-huh. I have this, like, you know, there's sort of this idea, you know, that, um, you know, that these procedures are out there, people are doing them, or this could be a place that, you know, Mullen thought of it. And this goes back to this thing that she said, you know, in that um, clip that you played, like, oh, you don't have to start with a blank page or start with nothing. Like, not only is she sort of working with this poem as the source mm-hmm. text, but there's like a ton of different ideas and source texts and processes um, and histories, you know, that she's working with, like in order mm-hmm. to change this text um, into something else. And I think that logic of the, um, of the thesaurus, like is, is clear, like throughout, throughout the poem and throughout, like some of those examples um, yeah. that we mentioned. Yeah, that's great. I love that. So, you know, um, Sleeping with the Thesaurus <laughs> as a kind of, <laughs> su- you know, subtitle for this uh, for this poem or something. You know, I, I think one of the things um, about the thesaurus or about the idea of synonyms is that, you know, like the question it raises, you know, I think we would say to say a student who was writing an essay and wanted didn't want that word and just wanted a synonym that the, that the, the thesaurus sort of it, the words are not in fact interchangeable that, right. That we have um, that though semantically, maybe their definitions are closely related. We would have other, and I would say, broadly speaking, like contextual reasons for preferring one word over another in a given circumstance. Right. And that might have to do with, you know, the register or the tone of the thing we're writing, where one word might seem more formal than another, or it might have to do with sort of culturally defined contexts in other ways. Um, This might get into sort of questions in another way of speaking, like code switching or something like that, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But it's interesting to think about, okay, so if she's sort of substituting by some principle or procedure of um, synonymity, I don't know if that's that the word, <laughs> maybe. Okay. Um, sort of what is guiding her for choosing the the kinds of synonyms she chooses? You've already given us one answer, which is that she's sort of like replacing um, things that might seem natural, even in the Shakespeare, even like the sun, even though in another way of thinking, Shakespeare himself seems to well understand the kind of artifice that goes into the selection of those things. Nevertheless, they like seem natural and she's making them, I don't know, modern quote unquote, but also like highly artificial and man-made or something. So sun to neon, as you said before, or snow and commercial snow, as you pointed out to liquid paper, a brand name for whiteout. Um, um, the, you know, one thing I was thinking about, Keegan, is you said this to go back to like something we were talking about a, a, a bit ago was like her suddenly it seemed to me, oh, the way she reads the poem, it's almost like there's this sort of sly kind of like, I can't believe I have to read this poem kind of attitude. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm maybe turning the dial too much in that direction to kind of identify the affect that I'm hearing. So dial it back a bit and then maybe that's a more accurate, but that kind of thing, it's like, she's being made to read something that she finds silly or something like, like I I'm hearing that in her voice Um, or like uh, this is a groaner, but here we go. Here's the joke I'm going to tell you, you know? 
Um, so I don't know. We we need to talk more about um, about you know places in the poem, lines in the poem, sentences in the poem that you find interesting. But um, yeah, so I, I don't know, Keegan, pick pick a couple of your favorite um, early-ish moments here where. Mullen is doing something interesting in your view with the source material or where just forgetting about the Shakespeare, if you want to do that too, you think there's a kind of interesting play going on here. Yeah, no, I will. But just, just to pick up on something that you said that sort of excited me. So the, I, I think it's irony. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, I think, I Good think word that, for that, it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, you know, and I think, cause you identify it so well, but I think that, I mean, we can really, and maybe that is a good answer for sort of the tonal question that you ask uh-huh. too, right? And people have written about, I mean, Anthony Reed talks about like in Mullen's work, there's like a blues irony, right? Like right. throughout her work. Um, and I think that that's a really brilliant way to read it. But I think that that notion of like, this is sort of a groaner, like has to do with um, the sort of the way that some of this slang like doesn't quite fit together and yet linguistically is brought together like through the through um you know through black speech through african diaspora or something like that but then also like the fact that this is bringing out this like the sort of i don't know what you want to call it but like the dreamscape of the original sonnet like this notion mm. that there is this like you know hyper constructed thing like right based on race and racialization within mm you know, sonnet 130, right? That, mm-hmm. you know, beauty is um, is whiteness, right? right? That, you know, like needs to be like brought further, you know, to the surface or kind of like really exploded like within Mullen's poem, which she does like really beautifully, you know, but that is also like within, you know, Shakespeare's, you know, sonnet yeah. 130 itself, like very yeah. clearly. So there's this sort of, it's doing this extra work um that we kind of know about and that we see and yet is like so important right and so that that i think has to do with with that tone too um yeah but i like yeah. the way you called it a groaner <laughs> <laughs> yeah well you know but it's like a groaner that you, you know what i mean it's like um it's it's different from saying like to somebody oh that joke you told me is such a groaner it's like here's a groaner i'm going to tell you <laughs> you know yeah um yeah um I like what you said earlier about like the kind of doubling down or tripling down that she does. So I think, you know, not, we're not going to keep talking about the first line, but you know, my honey bunches peepers just take that phrase. Like, and I'm thinking of how the poem might feel different if it were something more like my honey bunches eyes are nothing like, are nothing like neon, but it's like, she takes every noun and replaces it so that the effect of the slang is, I, I think not as slang often might, function in a kind of literary context to sort of naturalize the language and make it sound colloquial. Nobody Mm -hmm. talks like this, right? Nobody would say, nobody would use all of that in one sentence, I don't think, or it just doesn't sound natural to me, right? Yes. Um, So that's an interesting thing going on, right? Or like, or if her mop were slinkies, you know, what if it were, if her hair were slinkies, that might that wouldn't do the doubling or tripling down thing that her poem seems to insist on doing over and over again. Yeah, Um, no, it's almost, it's like, it's Frankenstein, you know, there's this sense. It's really, really over the top. Um, And the red and white, um, which is already in 
you know, the um, in Sonnet 130 with, you know, roses and coral and snow and um, things like that, like become, um, you know, p- pizza parlor, like the, you know, checkered, um, you know, tablecloths and, right. um, and red lobster and the, the whiteness. I mean, one of the, the Twinkie moment, the scrumptious Twinkie, mm-hmm. um, which doesn't have a sort of clear correlation um, in the, in Sonnet 130 is a moment I really love because it takes that whiteness um, like to the extreme, you know, this sort of this like, you know, very white the snack. whitest <laughs> snack you can imagine. Yes. Yes. That is very right. sweet. Right. But that is, I mean, the, in this context is totally estranged and disgusting. Um, and so I guess, I guess the correlate for that is the word love in, right. in the Shakespeare, right? My love, my scrumptious right. Twinkie. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Sorry. You were making a more interesting point than that. I no, no, I, no, yeah. just, just on this notion of the of the tripling down, that's an example that I love. Um, mm-hmm. Or you know something um, like the you know garlic breeze, my main squeeze wheezes. Mm-hmm. Um, that there's like this you know sort of extraordinary um, you know constructed aspect and almost you know gross grossness um, you know quality. Mm-hmm. Um, to the Moen, you know, to the Moen poem, um, which I think really does, I mean, it, it, you know, highlights like something interesting um, in Sonnet 130. And it, I mean, it also plays with, to go back to what you said about like, you know, we teach our students, like, don't try to, you know, sound fancy in your paper by right. just replacing one word with another, because you're going to lose the you know, um, connotation and get further away from what you mean or something like that. Mm-hmm. The, the logic of, of Sonnet 130, I mean, it's already like, it's similes. I mean, it's, it's negating similes, like right. this idea that the, that the beloved is like beyond compare. So she can't be like anything. Um, mm. So there's something really cool about Mullen saying, I'm going to take that logic. What if this word is like this other word? What if I sort of use this notion of semblance? What if I am the worst student? Um, What if if I use this notion of semblance and make it, you know, between um, uh, definitions, right? And make it kind of go haywire. Like, what does it expose kind of about that logic of comparison um, or about Mm. that kind of like idea of something being like, you know, something else um, to begin with, because then you end up with this example, like you pointing like that love is a scrumptious Twinkie. And what does that say? What does that say about sort of our, um, our contemporary culture, our dating scene, our what does um, it this, say? I don't know. <laughs> this, this moment um, that that Moen, you know, is trying to to capture, right? Um, yeah. I I think it's important that this has so many brand names in it. We talked about liquid paper and mm-hmm. slinky, um, like, no, yeah, right, right, yeah, um, and so that there's this this sort of like you know commodity um or commodity fetishism like to the way that we think about beauty 
um, that is right. not, I think, in Sonnet 130, but isn't too far away, maybe, from some of these similes that um, mm. that are in one in Sonnet 130, right? That right. That it sort of it brings out kind of the absurdity of that logic. Right, right. Oh, that's that's really interesting. Right. So to take a line like, and I realize we're sort of skipping all around, but I feel like one of the advantages of a short poem is that you don't have to do the laborious thing of doing line after line after line. You can just sort of move around a bit. Um, I grant I never saw a goddess go becomes, I don't know any Marilyn Monroe's, right? So um, the goddess becomes a woman with a name, Although it occurs to me, even as I say that, that like that wasn't actually her name, <laughs> you know, Marilyn Monroe is sort of like a stage name and um, and and uh, and a really kind of um, commercialized product in in some in some very real way. Um, or um, if you take the line in the Shakespeare, I'd love to hear her speak. Yet, well, I know that music hath a far more pleasing sound. Um, you know, that's an interesting line in the Shakespeare. So what, so the the kind of, the thing it's playing with is like, oh, you think I'm about to say, if this were some other poem, I might be saying that when my, you know, love speaks, it's like music comes out of her mouth. But here, no, I know that um, music sounds better than she does, even though I do like to hear her speak. So for for Mullen, I love to hear her rap, which could be like, that could be slang for like talk, I guess, Mm -hmm. right? Or it Mm -hmm. could be a kind of music that's like talk, right? Um, um, And that has its own, obviously, like racialized history um, to it. Yet I'm aware that Muzak has a hipper beat. Muzak, which is like what you hear in an elevator or a hotel lobby or something like that, which is the least hip kind of right. music that there is, right? So, exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. No, I think, and in, and in both poems, I mean, the the like humanity of the beloved, I think, is clear, right? Like, I think that there's... Um, it's you know that um the beloved has as much sex appeal for me as any lanky model or platinum movie idol who's hyped beyond belief um that 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 one it's really it's the um the sentiment there is is to me strikes me as very similar to this Mm. notion of of beyond compare so that this is kind of fighting against you know commodification of white beauty standards like within Mm -hmm. the poem like actually like quite sincerely even if it's even as it's doing Mm. all of this playful work um of making that type of beauty sort of monstrous um and you know poking fun at um at the at the beloved a little bit like i think Mm -hmm. music has a hipper beat like you know Mm -hmm. i mean that's it's not it's not mean. <laughs> um, oh, well, I mean, it's, actually, it's sort of sweet. <laughs> it's kind of mean. I don't know. Um, <laughs> y- you know, I, I can imagine like putting the Shakespeare, and I've never taught this sonnet, but I can, the Shakespeare, but I can imagine putting it in front of students and saying, 
you know, asking a kind of ordinary question like, how would you feel if your boyfriend gave this to you on Valentine's Day? Like wrote this for you, you know, whatever. Like, would you feel good? Like, does it is or or would you feel made fun of or would you feel both or, you know, so that would be an interesting question we could we could take on directly, I guess, if the Shakespeare poem were the poem under consideration here. Mm-hmm. You know, we could ask a, the kind of commensurate question about Dim Lady, you know, how should the beloved of that poem feel about being addressed in this way? But it occurs to me that we could also ask the question like, what is implied about how Mullen would answer the first question? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. what does she think is happening in the Shakespeare poem? Does she think that the quote unquote speaker of that poem, the sonneteer, whatever, Shakespeare, that he, that it's loving, um, in fact, you know, and that it's sending up the the kind of Petrarchan conceit, um, but that it actually exists in a kind of loving form of regard to the flesh and blood woman or person um, who's the the object of that poem. But sort of like, what does Mullen think about that? And yeah, so I don't know. Do you have a thought about that, Keegan? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's it's and I. I love the question, but I think I think of the question like a little bit differently. So that oh, good. That because I think her Mullen is really interested in like what what the process because this this sonnet is sort of working in negating similes. So what does that process tell us about the Petrarchan beloved or something like that? Um, Wait, and slow she down. Does and say, these, say that again. Yeah, say say more. Yeah. Or, yeah. Well, she does these really cool kind of because it's not it's not just synonyms like there are these kind of associational aspects like with what with what she's doing because um, like you know coral coral is in the sea and she gets red lobster from there. There's <laughs> um, the ball and chain um, comes from the ground, right? Because the the um, in the in sonnet one thirty the goddess. Um, treads on the ground and so we Mm. see kind of these it's clearly there's slang substitution but it's slang substitution kind of working closely with like associations within like the like metaphorical like path or imprint of the of the sonnet um so i think she's trying to sort of even further expose or the the poem is trying to kind of even further expose these metaphors or the way that we think, you know, what these similes actually do to the beloved, like they make them, they make the beloved into something else. What do they make the beloved into? Right. Um, And these are the places, you know, that, that we get taken to is this sort of the, the gross slinky or sorry, the gross Twinkie, um, the, the ball and chain, this sort of this level of absurdity that is inhuman, right. It is not actually, human itself um and so then to end with something that isn't you know necessarily an image that is sort of a negation of a possibility of an image or a possibility of a comparison right so Mm. you know beyond belief like you know beyond Mm. anything that could be um could be compared um i think is the thing you know if my 
if my lover wrote this to me that I would say makes me feel good about, yeah. um, about this poem, right? Is that it sort of exposes this whole world of the logic of this type of language really clearly. This language is raced and, um, you know, this language is, you know, constructed and it relies on these, you know, you know, falsified construction, constructions of femininity and stuff. Yeah. But that's actually not what's happening to me. Like at the end of the poem, you know, like I'm, I'm aside from that, me, the beloved. Right, this, right. Yeah, scenario. you, the beloved, are a, are a person, you know, are um, right. an, an, a, a particular person and an actual person whom the lover knows for what you right. are, not to try to sort of shoehorn you into um, these absurd kind of normative um, standards of what that person you know who that person should love or what that person should love because it it feels more like a what than a who actually yeah right yeah um right right so so okay then here's another question i have for you which is like to take one step further back from the poem maybe or to add a kind of layer which is i mean not um totally uh I, i mean has has been something i think that we've been kind of playing around with but i want to take it on sort of directly here as we kind of wind um towards a conclusion of this conversation which is you know you you said earlier about the shakespeare that it's um sort of related to this um that it's playing with this kind of tradition of the the blazon or the i don't know maybe Say enough. I don't know. I never know whether to say that word French or not. You know the, uh, but anyway, yeah, right? Both okay. ways. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just yeah. say it quietly. And- yeah, <laughs> right. Don't say it for, <laughs> it for perpetuity on a podcast, and then I'd be held. <laughs> yeah, don't do that. God forbid. Um, but so so, and we talked about how one thing that that kind of um, trope or um, maneuver does is to kind of enumerate the parts, right? To sort of take the the beloved and to um and to name one by one the features of her that be, and it's always you know at least in the kind of i think in the in the kind of standard sort of version of this poetic procedure you know a, the a gendered kind of construction right so it's the male poet sort of enumerating the the features of the of the woman whom he loves um there's So clearly Shakespeare is playing with that. Clearly Mullen in her own way is playing with that. But also I think in the way that the poem has a kind of... Mullen is attending to two things. I mean, maybe Shakespeare is attending to two things, but Mullen has an extra thing. Like she's attending to her lover or the, or within, you know, I don't, and I don't know if the poem was given to someone or if she had someone in mind, but it's as though the poem were, right? There's a kind of implied honey bunch, you know, who's the recipient of the poem or, or something, or the, the, um, the object being described in the poem. But she's also attending to the Shakespeare, right? Um, and she's doing it in a, in a blazon kind of way too. Like she's, she's sort of, part by part piece by piece kind of enumerating the each line in the Shakespeare gets its correspondent 
phrase or line in Mullen. It's 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 like a kind of you know there's the um, it's like Coleridge or Wordsworth that we murder to dissect right that but that idea of like um, piece by piece um, sort of attention to the object here is given not just to the person um, that the poem is about but to the poem that the poem is modeled on. Um, and, um, and I, so I, you know, I guess the, you know, if one question that we had just been asking was like, how should the, like, what kind of, um, attitude is being performed here with respect to the beloved, you know, maybe another question we could ask is like, what form of attitude or what attitude is being, um, um, offered here to the poem that the poem is modeled on, like, um, is it? Does is Mullen being loving to Shakespeare, <laughs> or what kind of loving attention is she giving to Shakespeare? That's so interesting. Um, I, you know, I do think there there's this the intensity of attention is loving, right? Even though mm. the there's a you know a snipping and a revision and a cutting and a you know all of these things that might not um ribbing too you know, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> ribbing right yeah. they don't necessarily sound pleasurable um but there's something that that the results i think is getting is sort of hewing even closer right it's sort of exposing you know more of a truth right more of what's kind of beyond compare through this excess of comparisons um, mm. and through this process of enumerating the absurdity of the logic of comparison and resemblance um, mm. that there is actually this, this logic at work where we can kind of acknowledge the absurdity of that um, together. Right. And maybe that, maybe this actually brings us full circle. <laughs> Oh, yeah. um, but there's this there's this sense um, of readership in in yeah. the way that she loves this poem um, huh. or in the way that she revises this poem that is like quite loving. Um, that what do you mean by readership? Say say more about that term. Yeah. 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 Well, there, I mean, I you know, you could think of this as, um, you know, uh, a work of criticism, you know, about anti-blackness. Um, in Shakespeare's sonnet um, or about the sort of formal construction of simile in Shakespeare's sonnet um, and that that's there's critique there I mean there's something you know quite um, sharp but also you know so attentive um, and mm. captivating like this is clearly a poem that um, is seductive and captivating. I mean, to us, like Mullen's poem, I think is captivating um, to us, mm -hmm. but also um, she shows that there's something really captivating about Sonnet 130. I see it, you know, after after hearing Mullen, you know, read or reading um, Dim Lady, um, it's hard to kind of think about Sonnet 130 in the same way. It certainly enlivens it um, mm. and, you know, brings brings sort of, um, elements of it, you know, to the fore um, that wouldn't, you know, be apparent um, before, like in the way that good 
good, you know, poetry conversation does, good <laughs> criticism does, you know, good readership does. Right. Um, so, and yeah, so I, yeah, I think there's a way in which the poem is, you know, it's pointing out a certain sort of um, commodity obsession that's like a love relationship or something like that. And so it's sort of tempting to say that, that the relationship between the two poems is tra transactional, you know, uh -huh, that she's sort of uh -huh, using yeah. Shakespeare's poem, but I don't, I don't, no. I don't yeah. think so. Like, I think that there's actually um, the a kinship or a, or a sweetness, at least I think um, between those two works. Well, in fact, something that I think I'm hearing you say, and it's, it's such an interesting thought and maybe um, a place for us to sort of end is you know, I was thinking back to when you were saying, you know, I had offered that kind of hypothetical. If you were given this poem and take either the Shakespeare or the Mullen um, by a, you know, a lover, how would it, how would you feel? Would you feel loved by it? And you, I mean, not to oversimplify your answer, but you, I think, said something like, well, yes, basically. And, and, and because I think it would make clear to me that my lover was attending to me and not to and not to some kind of um you know normative form that i could could only fail to fulfill and wouldn't be me even if i fulfill you know all that um if by analogy we were to take that same kind of logic in your answer there which feels like right to me you know and apply it now not to like um how the like the poem's attitude towards the beloved, but instead Mullen's attitude towards Shakespeare mm. or or towards Sonnet 130, then we could say, like, well, how should Sonnet 130 feel about being addressed in this way? Right. And the and the kind of analogous answer would be something like, oh, Mullen um seems to understand and value the Shakespeare for not being um, a kind of normative poem in some way, but for instead being like um, a particular poem. Um, mm -hmm. And, yeah. and there's something, and you, you know, so it's part of the reason why I, th I thought of that was use the word enlivening. It has a kind of a enlivening relation to, to Sonnet 130. And I think, if the logic of either Sonnet 130 or Dim Lady works in relation to the lover, like the reason the lover feels good is the lover feels enlivened by the, right? right. Rather than sort of like killed by, <laughs> by the Petrarchan kind of conceit. And so maybe the same thing is happening in a kind of meta literary or meta poetic kind of way here. Um, so that's, that's a, that's a thought that um, just came to me from, from what you were saying. And I, um, and I, I, it feels right to me. Um, Keegan, this has been um, so much fun. Um, and I wonder if, um, if we can wind up the conversation by my asking you to read Dim Lady for our audience. Yes. Um, yeah, this has, been, this has been great. Thank you so much. Um, so we'll end um, with Dim Lady. My honey bunches peepers are nothing like neon. Today's special at Red Lobster is redder than her kisser. If liquid paper is white, her racks are institutional beige. 
If her mop were slinkies, dishwater slinkies would grow on her noggin. I have seen tablecloths in Shakey's pizza parlors, red and white, but no such picnic colors do I see in her mug. And in some minty fresh mouthwashes, there is more sweetness in the garlic breeze my mane squeeze wheezes. I love to hear her rap, yet I'm aware that Muzak has a hipper beat. I don't know any Marilyn Monroes. My ball and chain is plain from head to toe. And yet, by gosh, my scrumptious Twinkie has as much sex appeal for me as any lanky model or platinum movie idol who's hyped beyond belief. So uh, you've just been listening to Keegan Cook-Finberg reading Harriet Mullen's poem, Dim Lady. And um, Keegan, um, again, thank you so much for um, the conversation. I found it um, enlivening, <laughs> just, as, <laughs> just as you said the poem was. So um, yeah, I want to thank you for that. Um, thank you. And- yeah, of course. And um, thanks, thanks, listeners, for hanging out with us for the last uh, 90 minutes or so. Um, um, I hope um, I hope you've learned things like I have from this conversation. And um, please do remember to um, follow the podcast and um, leave us a rating and review, share um, an episode with a friend, um, spread the word. Uh, we will have more for you soon. And um, Thanks very much, everyone. Be well.